definitely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Hello, I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Today we are here with Thembi Duncan, former director of arts engagement and education at Shea's Performing Arts. Thembi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bridget. I'm so happy to be here. So much has happened in Buffalo in just obviously the last three months. Before then, there was the pandemic. How are you doing? Right now, I'm focusing on self-care. I'm focusing on uh, an aggressive sense and act of self-preservation and really uh, making sure that I have a cup that is full before I give to others. I, I tend to do that a lot in my work and I want to make sure that I'm replenishing myself. So those are the things I'm focusing on right now. So feeling, you know, fair to middling, but getting better. <laughs> How are you feeling? Uh, I'm I'm good actually. Thank you for asking. Sure, I appreciate that. Um, as women of color, we go through the world in a particular way. Uh, sometimes in several particular ways. Um, how are you processing what's going on? How do you process racism? Racism is something that permeates so much of our lives every day. And because you talk about as women of color, the way we move through the world versus people who are not like us moving through the world, you know, we, we are all having coming at it from these different angles. And to me, being on this this uh, spectrum, the scale of privilege toward the idea of whiteness and the idea of of the most uh, advantages and, and the most favor if you will for back of lack of a better word in society and how and how we're we're trying to walk through the world balancing the value that we know we have and and the importance that we know we have with society's messages of how and as the farther you get away from the idea of whiteness the worse off you are the more unfortunate you are that just doesn't ring true for us and i think when i move through the world i'm always moving through the world in a way that is uh, focused on deconstructing these concepts and these ideas because they are just concepts they're 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 social structures that harm all of us really and mm -hmm disempower all of us. So I think for me, it's about always wanting to move in, in that purpose and, and wanting every aspect of my life to reflect that. Because it seems like that's that's the standard, right? It, it's the standard of beauty, the standard of performing in a job, the standard of what is acceptable yes. in society, yes. what is um, you know deemed respectable in, in society. There's the standard, but it's not 
always one that is complimentary or even one that um, holds true for each and every body of, of people, uh, certainly color of people, definitely. Yeah, and, and often not achievable for most people. And, 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 and in my opinion, always, if, if we're all sort of trying to get at something that's hard to define and trying to get at something that most of us can't have or, or aren't intrinsically, then it keeps us in this state of confusion and distraction and frustration versus being our best selves and enjoying and loving and celebrating each of our unique contributions and differences and, and not placing value on one thing over the other rather than really seeing each other. I think one of the things that, that we can do to to benefit society is to see each other more and to listen to each other more. I think a lot of times people see things as a zero sum situation. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm this, I'm that I'm right. You're wrong. You know, as opposed to, well, let's, let's listen to each other and understand each other more. And there's a lot of empathy that has to go into that, right? You have to understand, not necessarily understand. You need to try to understand uh, someone else's perspective. I mean, you know, would it be great if we can all just have universal understanding? Sure. But, you know, we are living in an actual real world where sometimes you're not going to understand somebody's point. Um, But there needs to be, and there seems to be right now, a lack of respect for different perspectives for people. what role do you think social media plays in how people see themselves? I mean, you know, we talk about filters that, that people use um, to make themselves look sort of very homogenous. Everyone looks the same uh, on, on Instagram because they're all using the same filter to filter out what they really look like. So... How do you feel that plays a role in in people's psyche? I think it plays a huge role. I think I think the role that it plays is dependent upon which platforms you use the most, uh, how old you are, what you've had a- access to in terms of uh, how you use information, how uh, how digitally literate you are, mm. right? In terms of how are you curating your feeds to to uphold you and sustain you and inspire you versus things that are sort of meant to get you to buy certain products or get you to feel get you to feel bad about yourself so that you will buy certain products. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to, to look at capitalism as the root of a lot of the issues that we have. I think that when when we get into a mind frame of feeling that, okay, the more likes I have, the more clicks, the more views, the better. So now I've moved away from a quality approach and into a quantity approach. And I don't care if people are upset. I don't care if people are harmed. I just care that they looked and that they listened. And that's not a meaningful reaction. So I think in terms of social media's role in our in our psyche, I think that social media can be an excellent tool for engagement. It can be an excellent tool for uh, spreading the word about something that people who are outside of your geographical location can get in, inspired by, right? right? But it also can be a tool for really negative things. And we've seen that. And and I think that it, it's like a lot of a lot of things in our society that um, 
we have to have a certain understanding of what the possibilities of something are and to use it in its best way. But when critical thinking isn't being taught in schools, you have trouble with people sort of getting into internet arguments and things with, with no real standing, no real research, no real understanding, exposure to an issue. So I think that social media overall, unfortunately, is more damaging than not because people the the gateway, right? The right. the access to it is is broad, and I don't know if I'm arguing with a twelve year old or not, or 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 somebody sitting at a bot farm with some automated responses. And so that it takes away, in my opinion, the opportunity for real, meaningful face to face conversation. That uh, you know, for me, put me in the nineteen twenties in a Harlem Renaissance salon. Put me around a bunch of people who have something thoughtful to contribute, mm-hmm. and we can hold each other accountable in real space. That's a more localized conversation, but to me, those are the conversations that hold the most value because you have to be accountable for your views. You don't just jump in and throw and something in there, click and and then leave. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That anonymity is for a lot of people the their opportunity, right, to, yes. to lean into their worst impulses. Yes. So, um, In your bio, you call yourself an intersectional womanist. What does that mean? So I'm a big Audre Lorde fan. So for, for your listeners, you probably know who she is. I'm going to assume that your listeners know who she is. But if, if you don't, <laughs> her name is A-U-D-R-E-L-O-R-D-E. Um, there might be a U in there that I'm forgetting. Um, it, she was an incredible thinker, essayist, uh, poet, writer, just a, a black woman, a queer woman who looked around the world and really saw it. Sort of what I was speaking to earlier, saw it for what it was and called it what it was and mm-hmm. wasn't afraid. She was a very brave black woman. Um, she was uh, pretty much the person who coined the term womanism as a response to feminism, which was primarily white women and um, often very racist and left out black women and other women of color, uh, queer women and women who didn't uh, ascribe to a particular sort of limited view of womanhood. Mm-hmm. So I call myself a womanist because it's important to me that feminism is expanded to include all women, uh, that's cisgender women, that's trans women, that's any women who are in our world and expect as they deserve to thrive and to, and, and to live lives of fullness and, and opportunity and joy. So the intersectional part is about me having various identities and belonging to various groups, but how those things all intersect of course but but how they play out in my in my life as a black person um i we're not a monolith and i i'm mm. not just a black person i'm also a queer person and i'm also a woman and you know i'm also over 40 there are so many things about me that all play into the way i answer questions and the way i speak to people and the way i the rules that i govern myself by right um and so those things to me 
make me who I am. I'm not a flattened person. Um, when when I'm black, I'm not just black. When I'm queer, I'm not just queer, right? And and all of those things make me a unique person. And that group gets smaller and smaller as you lay those layers on and those intersections uh, come come into play. So that's what intersection intersectional womanism to me. It's taking all of my identities into account and and being a fighter for equity and opportunity and access for for everyone who fits into any of my categories, including myself, um, and and being open about that. Uh-huh. I think that it's it's interesting. Um, you know, there's a discussion right now uh, going on on social media again about the use of the word BIPOC. <clears throat> and you're smiling, so I... I I know that you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, for for the listeners at home, why do you think BIPOC is a bit of a troubling um, term? It's so interesting because I, I have spent some time on social media, in general, on the internet, uh, seeking to learn where the term BIPOC came from, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, right? Um, I had heard some people say, okay, it comes from academia. It's it's a term that was uh, debuted in, in academic uh, literature 20, 25 years ago. It got picked up in the Twitterverse, which is which a lot of academics are on Twitter. And mm-hmm. so they drop a lot of these terms. And and, and I have to give black Twitter uh, credit. And if you don't know what black Twitter is, it's it's not it's not an actual place. It's a it's a lifestyle. Uh, but black, <laughs> black Twitter has dropped a lot of terminology, um, specifically by black female academics. Uh, that is now in the public lexicon. There are a lot of people that, like intersectionality and things like that, where right. people are, you know, using terms that really were kind of uh, gatekept, right, mm-hmm. in inside ac- academia. So that right now, I will say in the theater world, I'll speak sort of to my ecosystem that I operate in. There is a lot of conversation about what BIPOC means because there are a lot of Black people who feel like, well, wait a second, now all people of color are being lumped into a category and now our differences and our, our differences that are wonderful and mm-hmm. our unique identities are being flattened. Coming back to my earlier point about intersectionality, the idea of not flattening people's identities. If you're Asian and Latine and black uh, or any of those things or, or an indigenous person, if you're a first nation person, why can't that be its own thing? Why can't you, openly and proudly be that why are we all lumped into that category but then there's also the global majority uh the Mm -hmm. term a lot of that in my opinion comes from the desire to offset the idea of the term minority which or the individual the individual right mm-hmm. that okay we're we're stronger together we're stronger collectively and and for for many it's in sort of an anti-white supremacy Uh, approach. And I think that it's okay for people to have different views of it and use it in different ways. I've used the term myself, uh, Mm -hmm. but I use it when I'm referring specifically to that, to where I'm not just talking about, okay, just black people or just Asian people. I'm saying, hey, in general, uh, people of color or BIPOC uh, deal with this issue or are invited to apply or, you know, I feel like it's applicable when that's who you're talking about. But if you're talking about a particular group, then talk about that particular group. And I think it comes... 
it, it comes into question when people use them interchangeably mm. and just they're, they're not thoughtful about how they use the term. I think all of right. these terms are useful if they have meaning that, that the, the listener and the giver understand. Sort of this mutual understanding of what, what it is that it means. Um, and I think that there's also certainly everyone wants to feel important and to sort of lump everyone together is not always a good thing. Um, there are people out there who, you know, say that they're they're not racist because they don't see color. Hmm. And that's certainly <laughs> a thing. Um, but pe- people are colors. It is what informs them. Absolutely. It, it's what makes them who they are. So to say, oh, I don't see color or, you know, any such thing sort of negates a whole chunk of a person it's 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 erasure yeah. it's erasure and and the idea of being a, a person who says i don't see color you're you're showing how privileged you are and that you you don't, you don't have, have to, to. <laughs> it's, it's not necessary for me to see color because i don't have to yep yep doesn't affect me either way and that says a lot and that's something that uh is a problem this is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. Today we're speaking with award-winning arts administrator, director, actor, playwright, and teaching artist, Thambi Duncan. A question which comes up frequently in performance spaces <clears throat> is the casting of a black or a brown person in a role that has traditionally be, been seen as white. Um, current examples include Zendaya as Mary Jane in Spider-Man or Elizabeth Wellington as Disney's live action The Little Mermaid, um, Nick Fury, Samuel L. Jackson in the Marvel Universe. Um, how do you feel about the uproar that inevitably follows one of these announcements? It's racist. I think that the fact of the matter is if you're creating a magical world and we're agreeing to suspend disbelief and join you in that magical world, the fact that if I can't imagine a black person or another person of color in a particular role that maybe up until this point has been played by a white person, then that's an investigation I have to make in myself. Uh, the problem is not you being in the role. The problem is me uh, having a lack of imagination and a limited box that I'm putting people in because somehow black people can't be superheroes unless they're the Black Panther. So I think that it's important for us as artists and creators, those of us who do this work, to build the canon out. The canon mm-hmm. itself, the American literary and theatrical canon, is extremely white. Not because America is, is extremely white, but just because it's been gatekept. The gatekeepers have only allowed certain things through. Not because people of color have not been creating work. We have always been creating work. We have always been creating amazing work. But the exposure to that work is always limited because at every step we're being we have obstacles being thrown. There's a lot of energy being put into just not even uh, amplifying our voices, which, you know, is is something we don't allow it to stop us. We continue to create work. I think about the black arts movement um, Mm -hmm. that followed up on the civil rights movement in uh, 1965, 1975, where so many 
pieces of important black poetry, music, you know, plays came into the canon, but they came into the canon because black people forced it into the canon. And, right. and you know, on the on the heels of a really important movement that forced, right? So it wasn't anything that, you know, people sat down at a table and said, okay, you know, we're going to... I guess it's time now. It's time now. Right. And that's how it has to happen. So to me, that's how it has to continue to happen. We have to force work into the canon. I'm really proud of what I'm seeing uh, on Broadway with a strange loop and things mm-hmm. like that, that are really people of color forcing their work into the canon so that when we're casting, it's not we're not always just looking at a million projects that don't have black characters or Latina characters or Asian characters as a rule, you know, why can't those characters already be that? Or why can't the character be completely neutral so that anyone can play it? Right. And so obviously when a piece is about race or it's about gender or it's about, you know, a specific group of people, then yes, you should be true to that and make sense of that. But if it's a fantastic, world why can't any people be in it i think uh i look at hamilton i look at bridgerton i look at things where where casting is is as imaginative as you allow it to be so i think that it's up to us as creators to push through and break through and just accept that that's how we have to do it no one has apparently seen a black mermaid I, I just it it, tell, it it goes to show you. Right. It goes to show you when you think about all of the little coloring books that we see as little tiny children. Right. Mm-hmm. And all the little projects that, that we did see. It's much more diverse now I've seen. But just how that can put in a person's mind where, you know, maybe they've never actually seen a black mermaid. And maybe when they were coloring the mermaids in their coloring books in first grade nobody colored their mermaid black i always colored everything the same color as me right so all of my little characters would be brown so it's like when you literally have never seen representation i think for some people they it really boggles them the thought that there would be a black mermaid and it's like well it met well empathy as you Mm -hmm. talked about imagine you were a black person wouldn't all your mermaids be black certainly and i guess it to a certain extent it boggles the mind a little because people can imagine a blue mermaid, but yet not a black one. Which does actually occur in nature versus blue, which doesn't. It's, again, to me, so much effort being put into white supremacy when you could just accept what is. Right, right. <laughs> so on the opposite end of the last question, the opposite end of the casting spectrum, um, how do you feel about an all-white cast of The Wiz? <laughs> or, you know, um, certain it. characters from yeah. Big River being <laughs> white? I think that I I will stand with my statement about if something is particularly about race, then it needs to be that. Uh, and those pieces are those pieces that will, that have come through the black arts movement and that have come through the Harlem Renaissance and periods of time where people said, you know what, I'm pushing this work. And people collectively engaged and endeavored to make this work uh, visible. Uh, to me, The Wiz is a response to Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's a very soulful black response. And so The Wiz needs to be black. Now, that said... It doesn't mean that if I if I'm a white 
child in an all-white school and want to be exposed to the canon that I shouldn't be exposed to the whiz. I don't need to be exposed to it by being in it. I think that's a difference. Again, lack of imagination. People have to be more thoughtful about, okay, I want to make sure that you have exposure to the canon. There's certain things you shouldn't necessarily be in, but you can still learn about it. We can watch it. We can talk about it. We can read from it. There are so many things that we can do that don't involve you, in a sense, putting on blackface mm-hmm. uh, for for an audience just to say, okay, we, we did the whiz. So that's how I feel about that. There's not, um, the playing field is already not level. So for people to do the kind of whataboutism in a situation where it's not even to begin with is disingenuous at best. Um, violent at worst to me. Talk to me about the theater, the arts as a, a space for healing for people of color specifically. The arts are so important. Going back to my earlier point about the black arts movement and the way that that created a safe space and a, and a brave space for people of color to resist uh, supremacist thought through art, to use art as a tool, a form and function relationship that I think is ancestral for us, goes back to the idea of a stool, not just being a stool, but being a beautiful work of art, of a comb, not just being a comb, but being thoughtfully carved, a blanket. You know, these are things that have form and function. And we take such pride and and we do everything with such a flourish and everything is so uh, dramatic and dynamic for us so it's just completely natural for us to have that connection to the arts and to me the arts are the most gorgeous expression for us of all of the things that we experience not just the pain but the joy that we're entitled to of course there are people who would say I'm working three jobs Uh, I've got, you know, kids and a family and bills and I don't, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. I just don't have time. Um, What would you say to them in order for them to be able to bring this important piece of culture into their lives, even in a tiny amount? I think it's important for people to recognize the way the arts show up in their lives already in their everyday, in the music they listen to, in the stories that they see in movies and films that are based in theater, that mm-hmm. are based in storytelling, that are based in in uh, the heritage of, of uh, the griot and, and folks who sort of carry on traditions. I think that having a journal that you write in every night before you go to sleep is art. Drawing a picture in it, writing writing your thoughts, being poetic, uh, creating prose that, that sort of responds to the world you live in is art. We are art. The, w- the way our bodies are created and, and, and the, the microscopic elements of our skin are all art. And, and theater can be how you uh, get out of your car and go into the store. Theater can be how you, how you dance around with your dog in the morning when you just finished walking him. I, I think that there, it's about finding those tiny moments because, yeah, we are very busy of course, mm-hmm. but but you have to find those tiny moments because what is the point? Why are we here otherwise? Do you want to just work until you die, or do you want to find moments that that you can pull pull like a rubber band and just kind of stretch them a little bit more and stretch them a little bit more until you've actually got something meaningful that you can that you can hold on to and that'll carry you through life. What well, goes back also to the 
the definition of art, the definition of theater. And what definition are you using? Are you using one that might have come from a colonial time that narrowly defines what art is? Or, or is art really about just any sort of self-expression? Um, let's talk for a minute about body language. Uh, as part of what you do, you teach artistry, um, you teach students, teachers, and recently the Buffalo Police Department. Yes. Um, tell me, tell me about that. That's been so wonderful. I've learned so much from that process. And just uh, for me, the way it started was I identified a need when I was watching, um, I was watching online a meeting between citizens and uh, Buffalo Police Department. There were several of them that had happened around the city of Buffalo. And for whatever reason, I wasn't able to attend one mm. yet. And I think a couple had gone by and I said, well, let me just watch this recording of one so that I can kind of see what they're talking about. What are the issues of import that I can explore and see how see how I can get the arts involved in this. And so I watched the, the recording and and there were citizens who were just so upset and they were yelling and they were angry and the officers who were present were sitting there and they were listening and it just felt so unproductive to me. Mm -hmm. It's not that I didn't understand why they were angry. Of course I understood, but I felt like, okay, so is this meeting meant to give them like a pressure gauge, a way to just vent and then nothing happens or or was this meeting intended for some understanding and some some cross communication? So I, I was thought about, okay, what can I do as an artist with both the community and the officers separately and then create some sort of common language and then bring them together with that common language so that now we can talk to each other, we can hear each other, we can have empathy for each other. Mm -hmm. I never got to the citizens part. I started with the police officers mm -hmm. and we just kept going there. And now we're actually finally in a place where we feel like, oh, okay, this is something that we can connect with the community. But it, it's, it's theater based. It's based in the idea of uh, acting training, right. the, the protagonist antagonist approach, except the way I teach it is that everyone's the protagonist of their own story. A lot of times in stories we see there's a quote unquote good guy and bad guy, right? And we're taught to believe that, okay, the bad guy is the bad guy. There are no complexities there. The bad guy has no reason to be bad other than they're just naturally evil versus, you know, we all are capable of doing good and bad things. Certainly. Right. And we have complexity. So I, I teach in my work that uh, you have to have empathy for the other person's position and where they're coming from. And that's the hardest thing to do. But it allows you to deescalate yourself so that you can deescalate together. So we I just teach them aspects of body language that we learn uh, in acting school around a scene, how mm -hmm. you how you engage in a scene and make a scene interesting and and how you're after an objective and you have tactics that you try. And I say, hey, that uniform you're wearing is a costume and, and, and people are responding to that uniform. They don't even know you. So you have to be aware of that. So there's a lot of self-awareness and empathy that we talk about. And we do a lot of exercises that allow them to to uh, remove the the facade the mm. thing that you have to put on mm -hmm. and allow themselves to be people and allow themselves to respond to body language and be culturally competent when it comes to different cultures and how people express themselves some people are more animated it doesn't mean that they're hostile but right. if you don't have a relationship with them or if you don't have a cultural competency you may think oh this person was waving their arms at me so they're that's a bad like, right oh my goodness where it's this like is... no that's just they're passionate that's how they express themselves and right. i think 
uh, it's been very successful. We've had uh, we've been doing it for a few years and I've been able to interview officers who have been on the force for a couple of years and they talked uh, about how it was really helpful for them. So I'm excited and proud. And we just continue to develop together. It's not something where, again, I don't do I don't do work that's transactional. Mm. As an artist, I'm very much about sitting down and identifying a need and talking about, well, what do I have that can meet the need? What do you have? They sent me on 20 hours of ride-alongs. They put a bulletproof vest on me and I went on 20 wow. hours of ride-alongs because I needed to know what they confronted day to day. And it opened my eyes to a lot, you know, as a civilian. And I opened their eyes to a lot from the civilian perspective. So it was a beautiful um, and it continues to be a really beautiful relationship. And I think it's, it helps us move away from the the black and white issue of, oh, they're good cops or bad cops or all the conversation around it. Because in a lot of ways, we don't really talk to each other. As, as civilians and law enforcement, there are so many conversations that are not being had right. that need to be had. And we talked earlier a little bit about, um, before we went on the air, positive or even neutral and slightly positive engagements that that police or, or law enforcement can have with the general public and how if even one of those interactions was neutral or barely positive that it informs both parties again when and if they you know encounter another person in law enforcement Absolutely. It you know, if you could just talk about the importance of that. It's so important. A lot of times when officers are encountering people, they're they're having probably one of the worst days of their life. Right. And 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 it's really it's it's people emotions are high and it's important to the officer as a, a person responsible for public safety and a person who's carrying a gun to contain the situation in a way that's not aggressive and and gets people, you know, upset and and protects them. And so to me, I feel like theater uh, acting there are tools there that mm-hmm. we use that make us good actors that can be applied in all kinds of ways. And for and for me, I enjoy applying that in all kinds of ways. And mm-hmm. it's working. They they get it and they use it and I'm excited. Again, th- this is not for those life or death situations. Right. This is for day-to-day interactions that or constitute the majority of their interactions with the community. Exactly. Themby Duncan, thank you so much for joining us today. I am very excited to see what is next for you. Thank Um, you, Bridges. It's great. I am excited for your journey of a little bit of healing in there and a little bit of of self-care, which we all always need. Radical self-care. You have to do it. You have to do it because nobody's going to give it to you. You got to take it for yourself. Exactly. Um, This is Buffalo What's Next coming up. Dave Debo is here with Betty Jean Grant. Stay with us. WBFO is your home for trusted news about your community. And WBFO The Bridge connects music and community. Hear local music from bands like Farrell from Buffalo, Tedesco Knows Best from Niagara Falls, and Stress Dog from Buffalo every day on WBFO The Bridge. Listen at WBFO 88.7 HD2 or WNED 94.5 HD2 or stream it from WBFOTheBridge.org or the WBFO The Bridge mobile app. 
Watch Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Crystal Beach was such an important part of the lives of anyone growing up in the Western New York or Southern Ontario area. Relive those childhood memories with the WNED PBS original production, Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. WBFO's Arts and Culture Desk is co-sponsored by the Theodore Roosevelt inaugural site. Donations come in many forms, a sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to wned.org vehicles. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Garden Wisdom for Western New York and Southern Ontario. Learn the secrets right. to planning, cultivating, and nurturing your own extraordinary garden using time-proven solutions and sustainable methods. Garden Wisdom, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. This is Dave Debo joined this morning with Betty Jean Grant. She was a close friend of shooting victim Kat Massey. She's someone who's really so active in the community. I'm not sure uh, we need to do an entire introduction here, but we will anyway. She obviously has uh, worked in the community a little bit with her We Are the Women Warriors group, a former member of the Buffalo City Council, the Erie County Legislature, the Buffalo Board of Education. Back in 2017, in the primary at least, she ran for mayor of the city of Buffalo on the theme that the East Side perhaps wasn't getting enough attention. So to a large degree, we will talk about that today, and along the way, uh, we will touch on her friendship with Kat Massey. And uh, as the program uh, is titled, What's Next for Buffalo? What Does Buffalo Need? Betty Jean, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome, Dave. Let's start right there. What do you think is the largest unmet need short-term right now after the shootings on the East Side? I think it's economic development. I really believe that the East Side, when I ran in 2017, I believe the East Side had not gotten its fair share. And I was um, told that, yes, it has. And if you look at the Buffalo Medical Corridor, that's on the East Side of Buffalo. If you look at Larkinville, that's the East Side of Buffalo. In fact, we looked at uh, the uh, stadium uh, arena where the uh, hockey players play, the Sabre play, that's the East Side of Buffalo, East of Main Street. East of Maine, sure. East of Maine. So, so that statement could be said we, we got enough, but I was talking about segment of the east side, particularly those where residential, particular people of color lived that had not gotten its fair share. You know, people had been waiting day for years for a home improvement uh, rehabilitation grant from the city of Buffalo to be um, activated after being approved, and they had to wait one to three years. And so at that time, east side had not gotten its fair share. East side, it is getting its fair share. We still not quite there yet. And when you say the east side, again, you're right. Anything east of Main Street is technically the east side, but I think it's it's become sort of a shorthand for the community around Jefferson Avenue near where these shootings took place. Yes, and that's why I'm a wanted person who wanted to continue to say the east side of Buffalo, because you said East Buffalo, then we lose that identity. We lose that, that special target area where it has to have the most improvement. So I'm saying, let's say, call it 
the east side of Buffalo until we are at parity with other parts of the city, Buffalo, then we can go for the east side. But right now, to me and to a lot of people, because we need that special attention, that special recognition, they're saying, let's call it east side of Buffalo. And what's wrong with being from the east side of Buffalo? We have had doctors, lawyers, um, professors, teachers coming from the east side of Buffalo. So I don't think anything negative east side of Buffalo, but I certainly see there's negativity with the behavior of some of those who live on the east side of Buffalo as well as everywhere else. You know, we can't blame people being called east siders or being on the east side for gun violence. You know, that's, that's happened all over this country and also citywide. So I, I think that we need to focus on what the people need on the east side of Buffalo. And you say that that's basically economic investment. What does that look like? Is that uh, some big city project like, say, uh, a canal site, or is that just better housing? Henry Lewis Taylor at the UB has, has uh, looked a lot at housing and found out that uh, some something, and I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, something like 60% of that area are renters, not homeowners. Absolutely, and that's why I stress home ownership. And I ran on that premise of home ownership, and I'm glad to see that the governor and those in office now are pushing for home ownership. You know, build new housing. It is okay to have fantastic rental units, but once you start living in a rental apartment for 25, 30 years, when you leave or you're evicted, what you take with you is a bunch of rental receipts. You don't take equity. You don't take any kind of investment in that community that you can pass on to your generation for your to your children. And so what I see is economic development, is having the money that's made in commercial uh strips and in businesses on the east side so we can go to the canal side and spend the money. Canal side's fine. Canal side is developed for people city of Buffalo, but it's also developed to attract people to Buffalo and to attract visitors. I see nothing wrong with that. But the, the time and the energy and the money we spend on Canal Side should be invested on Jefferson Avenue. One thing that the massacre showed us May 14th, how bad, how bad we need economic development on the east side of Buffalo. If you, if you go to the memorial now, you will see uh, street that have uh, street that have a, has potholes. You will see curb that need to be replaced. You will see vacant building has been vacant in Buffalo since the riot of the 1960s. And so... I see economic development as the main issue, and behind that, closely following that, is home ownership. Economic development is something that would require subsidy in order to lure people there. How do you jumpstart business? There's subsidy already. Talk to uh, uh, Benison Development. Talk to uh, uh, Seminella Development. Talk about even uh, Jamal. Uh, who's developed from Seneca One. Douglas Jamal, sure. Yeah, that is subsidies. Every, and that, but it's called subsidy, whereas Economic fact, development plan, economic sure. Economic development, but if you look at corporate welfare, that's corporate welfare. And so I'm saying use the same uh, formula to develop the east side. So Jefferson Avenue can have the same consideration, the same amount of resources that you have put on Delaware, uh, Elmwood, Hurdle Avenue. Look at Hurdle Avenue. I know 20 years ago, they looked like it is today. It didn't get there by design. It didn't get there by accident. It got there through the conscious effort of a mayor of the city of Buffalo, uh, Tony Masiello, and and also the uh, state senators and the senator and Sean Ryan and others who said, we're going to make sure that Hurdle Avenue is competitive to other parts of the city of Buffalo. So that's why we have L1 Avenue. That's why we have Hurdle Avenue being developed. Uh, people are moving there. In fact, a lot of black businesses are moving on Hurdle. I see nothing wrong with that. But I also see 
there's a need to make sure that Jefferson Avenue has it. If you look at Top Supermarket, you take that away. There's not a viable business on there except Northwest Bank and a library. Yeah. And we put the library, when I was a council member in 2003, we designated funds for the library, for Tops Market, and for the um, Apollo Media Complex next door. Only thing has been added in the last 20 years, and my belief, is Northwest Bank. I'm glad they're there. The M&T Plaza. I was going to say, I think M&T's got one there. Yeah, yeah. yeah which is There's the building uh, next to the Tops where uh, the Golden Cup and the Challenger are. Yeah, yeah, that's owned by a, a, a private individual who's been struggling to get those businesses rented. He finally has them rented, but for years they remained vacant because people couldn't pay rent for a building where they didn't have customers come into that area of the city. So we we need to do is build it and they will come. We can't say have the people there and they're going to build build the businesses. We need to build the business and they will come. There is not a viable laundromat in that area. If you would take top supermarket away, that area would be, would be completely, I say, desolate except for the library, and that doesn't generate economic development. So do you dangle money in front of an um, entrepreneur to bring them in? How does how does this work? What uh, what, what kind of structure do we have to create in order to entice folks to engage in business along Jefferson? Make the process fair. Give them technical advice when they need it. Give them resources. Uh, give them financial assistance, as we're doing already. Um, small business development should be as important as large business development because small business development really drives the economy. It drives the city. So if you had a meat market or a fish market on Jefferson, you had if you have a laundromat on Jefferson, a flower store, a shoe store, you know, I, I, I don't like going out of Buffalo buying my clothes because I'm Buffalo, um, not Buffalo born. <laughs> I came in 1970. You came up from Alabama, right? No, Tennessee. Tennessee, Memphis, okay. Tennessee. We'll get there. We'll talk about we'll that in a bit. Close around, around the corner. But uh, I, I, I want to shop in Buffalo. I want Buffalo to grow, and I'm so proud of Canal Side. I am so proud of uh, what Howard Zemsky did with Lurkinville. But I want somebody to do something to Jefferson so I can be as proud at Jefferson as I am other parts of the city. Because I go in Jefferson. I, When I was uh, a council member, I had a monthly meeting at the, uh, not council member, sorry, state legislator, I'm sorry, uh, county legislator. I had meetings at the Meriwether Library once a month. We Are Women Warriors was founded in 2012. We met there. We still meet there once a month because I think that if we are going to support the, the people and the, the entity that's there, then they can grow. You know, why advocate for Jefferson Avenue when we're spending our money at Wegman somewhere else? Why advocate for top supermarket to stay open when we're not shopping there? Is the uh, subsidy that you would like to see similar to what Larkinville or or one Seneca Tower has. Uh, do, do we talk about tax breaks here? Is that the way to oh, do absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I think Jefferson should be designated a special enterprise zone uh, where they would be tax-free. You know, if you shop on Jefferson Avenue, you have tax-free status, and they, they did it before. They, I know Mayor Brown did it for Main Street. Let's do it for Jefferson Avenue and other parts of the east side of Buffalo. All right. Betty Jean Grant is here. She's with We Are War. Let, let we me get, are Women, women warriors. warriors. Yes. Tell me about what that group is. We Are Women Warriors was a group uh was founded in 2012. Uh, it was founded due to the fact that uh, there was a shooting in, in Florida that really devastated everybody. Though it was the killing of Trayvon Martin. 
who was shot by somebody who supposedly was representing law enforcement. At that time, we thought he was a honest to goodness Buffalo, I'm sorry, a Florida police officer. He was not. And so what people did, they were afraid that the situation that allowed Trayvon Martin to be murdered so viciously might happen in Buffalo, New York. So they were calling me, and I was in the county legislature, and it was telling me, we're scared, our sons are scared, we're scared to go out. So I said, well, let's have a meeting. And so we, elect officials, we had a meeting at Niagara Square, and we talked about the issues and concerns of those uh, family members, mainly female single head of household who had teenage son who were just petrified. And so from that meeting, we decided to meet again, and we met at the library. And then a lot of questions they was asking me, I didn't have the answer to. And I said, well, if we can meet on a monthly basis until we get this thing resolved. Well, a monthly basis has happened since 2012, <laughs> and we're still meeting. And some of the issues and some of the issues that were prevalent then is still there. Some of the issues that were pertinent then is still there. People are still afraid of the relationship between police officer and their teenage son. It's getting better. But, like, everything's a two-way street. You have to—the police have to come to our community knowing that they have to show respect and they must uh, observe um, people right to challenge you, people right to ask, why am I being stopped? But at the same time, our youth had recognized that law enforcement is law enforcement, that the, that commands a matter of respect and a matter of following order. So don't, to, don't resist. I always tell people, you know what, if they say something, go along with it. And they call your lawyer. Don't try to fight them one-on-one because they have the gun, they have the power, and they have the authority. Uh, just be quiet. Go along with what they say. Call your lawyer and live for another day. And this is a women's group because of the idea of motherhood? Working motherhood, with kids? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Yes. Has it made a difference, do you think? I absolutely made a difference. At one I'd be surprised if after so many years you said, no, Dave, it's just not working. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm a point to the pandemic. And, you know, we're women warriors work with pe- people such as uh, 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 hardware stores. I'm going to call it ABC Hardware. And we donate over 20,000 masks. At that time, we were on entity in Buffalo giving out free masks to people who would need them because people didn't have the money and the county didn't have the supplies. So we was able to do that. We passed out 20,000 masks. And I don't know the number of times that people tell me, Miss Grant, I'm alive today because I came to your store every single day and you gave me a free mask, no question asked. And so that right there is a, it's a difference that we have made. And we also made a difference and we give people a chance to know that you can be the change maker. You can make a difference. You don't have to call your elected official. You can call. If they don't do what you want to do, then you can call the news conference. You can be empowered by talking and not by waiting for someone to help you. Help yourself. If you can't help yourself, ask someone who can. If they can't do it, find out who else can help you. We are women warriors. That, we are there you women go. warriors. We fight for you. Talk to me about uh, your upbringing. You mentioned Tennessee earlier. That, to my mind, is the deep south. That, to my mind, is, and I'm exaggerating for the sake of conversation here, the home of really uh, overt racism. You came to Buffalo. Did you see the same thing? It was uh, um, overt racism, and that's, I think, I really have overt and covert. Overt, you know, exactly what people felt about you. They told you, oh, you know what the rules and and morals, uh, the social distancing. Uh, My town was even 500 African-Americans, 
500 whites, so even divided. Okay. But, of course, you know, we didn't control nothing but our labor. We didn't control the power. But there was a respect that you know your place and, and they know their place. We would work together, but there was no socialization. When we need to get a pair of shoes, we would go to the store and not try them on. Same thing for a dress. If we go to a cafe, uh, because we didn't own any of these businesses, we had to go to the back door of the cafe and order outside and wait in the rain for it to come. So there was something that I was born into, so I didn't see the unfairness of that like other people who might not have grown up like that but came down south and experienced that. So I, I, I knew my place as they said my place was, but I also knew that I didn't like that place. <laughs> and so I, my mother, she dropped out of school when she was in fifth grade because she had to raise her brother and sister because her family, uh, mother and father was old. But she always stressed education. So I went to a two-room school. I went to a school room where our husband and wife taught. She taught four grades. He taught four grades. And I was able to take that two-room school education, go to a high school that had four rooms. And I had maybe, there was like 12 teachers. And so, but they always stress education. They always stress that you don't have to be a condition to stay as you are, that there's a life out there. And I read a lot. And I think because I read a lot, I was able to take the, my two-room, four-room school education and go to Madai College at the age of 40 and graduated magna cum laude. And uh, I also passed the teacher's exam on the first time being a top 10% because the test was generated things that was not in my environment in Memphis, Tennessee, but it was in Egypt and Sudan. So I spent my time in school when the teacher was teaching other classes because we had four classes in one room. I spent my time reading, and I read about different uh, uh, regions. I read about different lands, different people, different culture, and I read about the white picket fence and that house and the white picket fence. And you said, I want me that. I I said, I want me that. I'm going to educate myself out of it. You know, I I can't, I can't, Apologize. I won't apologize for my color, but I can take a uh, responsibility for what's inside my brain. When you came to Buffalo, I've heard a lot of people say that that racism here is much more covert. Would you agree? Is that what you found when you came here? I I, I was called the N-word the first time in Buffalo when I was a council member. I was going to the Lovejoy District for a fundraiser for the council member there. That's the first time to my ears I heard that N-word, and it wasn't in the Deep South. Where I grew up, it was in Buffalo, on the east side of Buffalo. What year was that, roughly? I'd say it was in 2001. Wow. Yes. So clearly, if we're talking earlier in the program about the need for more investment, and if we're talking now about the fact that 2000-whatever, you were called the N-word, racism exists. Can we say the reason for the disinvestment that you spoke of earlier is racism? Absolutely racism. Because when we uh, got the uh, library in Top Supermarket, and Tops would not have been there had we not had a majority in Common Council. In 1999, we elected seven uh, African Americans to the Buffalo Common Council and at a body of 12. So we had a majority. And so with that majority, we was able to put things in place where we had pushback from other council members saying, you can't put that multi-million dollar library on the east side. It's not worth it. You can't put that supermarket, that top market there. But we stood firm and we negotiated. And we, that majority of seven only lasted day for two years. And then we went back to being the minority and we didn't get anything else after that. So I say, based on the fact that we had the numbers, the change, and we had the vote, we was able to get that. But the mindset of those who who didn't want that investment on the east side of Buffalo 
that's still out there. Racism will never die. So how the heck do we change that? Is it is it conversation alone? I, I don't see that necessarily doing it. Uh, Maybe a component, but how how do we get perhaps more white people to respect or at least appreciate more more black people? Is it is it a matter of engagement? Is it, it a matter it, of what what absolutely, what change do we have to it's have? Absolutely engaged. It's talking about admit the fact, blacks and white, that racism is here. The racism may will always be here, but we need to educate ourselves to, to move towards talking about it. And that, that conversation needs to be held. You can't just say, "Okay, it's night one." When I saw the people who came to the massacre uh, site. There were many, many, many white people who came from the suburbs. Many of them came, and there was preaching and praying. And I said, when I spoke, I said, you know, this is great for us. We already know. You need to take these prayers and this preaching to your community so that your community, your neighbors will know that racism is, is, is the cause of this, that these people are dead because their color of their skin, uh, their skin color was black. That's why they're dead. No other reason. Not, not that somebody hated them, somebody knew them, they had done something to them. For the simple fact they were black. Take me back to the day of the massacre. Uh, You've been on national radio through NPR, through us, talking about your deep friendship with Cat Massey. Uh, Uh, What happened was uh, on the day uh, someone called me and said there's been a shooting at Tufts and somebody might be dead. And I I was 20 minutes away, so no, in fact, 10 minutes away. And so I went down there and uh, didn't really believe it until I saw all the people there in the parking lot. And they said there's two people dead. And that number kept slowly, slowly going up. And I didn't know that it was my friend, Kat Massey, who I was a warrior. She would have joined the Weird Women Warriors the first year in 2012. I didn't know she was a victim until uh, about 8 o'clock. Someone say, did you know Kat Massey? You knew Kat Massey, didn't you? I said, knew. And I knew then that she was one of the victims. Mm. And so I went, immediately went to her, her um, sister's house. And all the families were there, and we talk about Kat and how much she had done, how much she's going to be. No, we were in shock, to be honest with you. We were totally, totally in shock, saying we couldn't believe it. And so after we talked, I said, Barbara, you know what? Kat done so much for this community. We are going to try to get a trailblazer sign for her on this street because on that street, on Cherry Street, mm-hmm. four of her family members live on that short one-block street. And so what happened was I called Councilmember Pridge, and after Barbara said, yes, we'll do it, I called Councilmember Pridgen. That night she died and said, Councilmember, we need a trailblazing sign for Cat Mass on Cherry Street to honor her. He said, Betty, go ahead and do what you need to do. And, and this is where the street gets designated as Cat Massey yeah, yeah, Street? Yes, okay. it's, it's, it's an honorary designation. It doesn't change the name of the street, but give it honorary status. And so if you go down Cherry Street in Michigan, there's a sign there saying Cat Mass Away. And that is to say that we recognize what she did. And she will always be remembered in this city for her contribution. And she did so much so much for so many people. She was, you talked earlier, the concept of warrior. She yes, was she, a warrior. She was a warrior. And she is a warrior because we're going to keep her legacy alive. Uh, talk to me more about that. That was just going to be what I was going to ask next. What kind of things did she do that the community now needs to continue to do to move stuff forward? We need to make sure to know that our children are our future and that they need a decent quality education. Cat adopted a school, Futures Academy. She bought the first uniform for those children at that school, one person using her own private money. She was able to get this, the, the um, New York State Department of Transportation to put the African signs 
on the concrete that faces the abutment, it faces her house. You see that top used those yeah. same symbols and put it in their store so they can remember. So her legacy is already in place. She um, was able to help form the Cherry Street Block Club and got that park at Jefferson Cherry Street that's called the, um, I forgot the name of the park, but I hope it will be named the Cat Massey Park. And the thing is that all those people who were massacred, the guy chose the best. If he couldn't, if he could had selected people who had made a difference, who were very well loved and had done so much for the community, he couldn't chose anybody but them. It seemed like he chose the best of the best. A lot of the elders. A lot of elders, a lot of people committed to community, and 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 people, and a lot of them who were teachers and. Uh, Fact is, Pearl Young, if, uh, son, uh, is my grandson's football coach. Mm. So I was connected to a lot of people who were killed, and not just Cat Massey. About thirty seconds left, Betty Jean. What does Buffalo need right now? Buffalo need to be healed. Buffalo need recognized. Right now, they we're in shock. We are grieving. We're mourning. We're trying for the future, and we also have to reconcile the fact that these people they are gone. How can we best maintain their legacy? And what we're going to do is uh, September 10th is going to be a Harambe uh, prayer circle at MLK Park, September 10th, 3 to 7 p.m., to make sure that all 10 of them are recognized and honored and have less in tribute. Betty Jean, thanks so very much for being here. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. <laughs>